0: Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 51 this is the word of Almighty God now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said you do not know what manner of spirit you are of for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them and they went to another village this is the word of our God let's pray father we thank you for this your word and now, Lord, may we here see our Savior's face clearly and marvel at it. Use even the preaching of your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a, a critical text in Luke's Gospel. Verse 51 particularly is a, a very critical, crucial turning point in Christ's ministry. Uh, but, but to see that I need to, I think, spend a moment doing your favorite thing, which is talking about where this is in the book. And, and I know that that can be a little tedious sometimes. Um, but considering the section we're about to start will take up our sermons for the next year or so. Uh, I, I think it's good for us to know when in Christ's life this event is taking place this event is taking place certainly in the last six months of his earthly ministry and possibly and I'm going to suggest to you probably within the last month now that might sound strange because we're only one-third of the way into the book we're starting the second third of the book, but Luke is, is honing our attention on something. And most conservative scholars would agree that this is at least the last six months of his earthly ministry. This is how they get to that. There are three statements in the, the next third of the book of Luke starting here with verse 51, and then Luke 13, 22, and, when he, and he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and then Luke 17, 11, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. These three verses, most scholars will say, pinpoint this in the last six months of Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, The thought goes like this, here are his last three journeys to Jerusalem, and John's gospel shows us that the last three journeys took place in the last six months. And so according to John's gospel, the first of those three journeys takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's a big part of John's gospel, isn't it? He goes for the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he stands there and declares that he is the water of life. Come to me if you thirst. It's a big deal. And so that would be the first of the three, and that would be six months before the crucifixion, approximately. The second journey in John's Gospel is when he goes and heals That, that's the wrong word. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He already stinketh, as the King James says. He wasn't just sick. He was dead. And Christ goes to Jerusalem to raise him from the dead. And so this viewpoint, scholars would say, uh, Luke 13.22 is him starting his journey to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Sometime in that last six-month period. And then... Uh, Luke 17, 11, this view would say, is the final journey to the cross. So the last six months of his earthly uh, ministry. Many, though, in the conservative camp would say, well, that's not even extreme enough. Because there are several issues with identifying these as three separate trips that correspond to John's three trips. And here are just a few of the the problems with viewing it that way. Uh, First, Luke 13.22, if, according to that, it's parallel to him going to raise Lazarus, it seems strange that the disciples don't seem at all agitated in this section of Luke's Gospel, beginning at Luke 13.22. If Jesus as Luke 13, says, is basically stopping in all the cities and villages along the way to heal and to preach and to tell parables, then you would think his disciples would be quite agitated. And we don't see any sign of that. We do see it in John's gospel. He delays for a short period of time before even starting the journey, John says. And the disciples are very upset. But then John seems to indicate that once he starts on the road, they go straight to Lazarus's tomb, and so this doesn't really this this second text doesn't really seem to fit with that. The second problem is that uh, verse 51 here and Luke 13, um, if these are starting two journeys to Jerusalem, one for the tabernacles and one for the raising of Lazarus. Why include the mention of these at all if Luke isn't gonna actually show them arriving at Jerusalem at all? Which he doesn't. He doesn't show us uh, them arriving for the Feast of Tabernacles. There's no mention of the Feast of Tabernacles in Luke's Gospel. There's no mention of Lazarus dying in Luke's Gospel. So why bother mentioning that they're starting a journey if you're not gonna talk about the end of the journey? That seems strange. And we we could even go farther and say that nowhere in these chapters is Luke going to mention them journeying back to Galilee, which presumably they did after, well, we know they did, according to John's Gospel, after each of these journeys to Jerusalem. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, what we just spent a year looking at, chapters 3 through 8, would show us not only journeys to Jerusalem, they would show us journeys from Jerusalem to Galilee to other places. But for the rest of Luke, we will never see another location as the primary target for a journey. It's just Jerusalem in these three passages. And so that seems out of habit for Luke. And I think here's the biggest problem with that three-journey viewpoint. It's verse 51 itself. if we could swap chapter 17, verse 11, and 9.51 around, then it would fit better. Because then it would read here, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through Samaria and Galilee. And then you would get all the way down to chapter 17, verse 11, and it would read as 51 does here. But that's not how it works. Verse 51 makes clear to us that this is the last trip of Christ to Jerusalem. So what we have in the second third of Luke's Gospel is one trip. And he's going to remind us that we're on the trip because it's taken a long time. He's going to remind us in chapter 13 and chapter 17. Neither of which, by the way, say it's a separate trip. It just says he's in the process of journeying. So... What Luke does, in other words, with his Gospel, if you want the big picture outline, is chapters 1 through 950 show us the first 30 to 33 years of Jesus' life. And chapter 950 through 17, the second third, shows us the last month of his life. And then we get to the last third and it shows us the last week of his life. Luke is giving priority more and more the closer he gets to the cross. And because of that, he's going to skip over a lot of the middle of Christ's ministry. We've just (laughs) jumped over a bunch of stuff that John will talk about. Some stuff that will come up in... Mark or Matthew but Luke is now saying we're going to focus in why because remember Luke isn't a first-hand witness himself he he's the one that collects other witnesses accounts and apparently one of those witnesses told him that there was a day when Jesus something changed His person didn't change. He didn't become God or anything ridiculous like that. He was still God and man as he had always been. He's the same man. His compassion hasn't changed. He still heals people whenever he sees them sick along the road. But something changed one day. Something in his face. Something in his eyes. Something in his intent, his purpose, his focus. It was like all of a sudden, his mission had begun in earnest. And you couldn't divert him from it. And Luke, Luke, surely if he had heard such a thought from one of the apostles, would want to know more and more about what followed that. And so he gives a, th- a third of the book. Here are the eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did while he was focused. On one goal. So let's think about that this morning and focus on this, mainly on verse 51. Verse 51, which shows us uh, a moment in Christ's life, a moment of reception and a moment of resolve. I want to think about those two things the reception and the resolve in verse 51. So first, the reception. Verse 51, we read, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. What's the reception? Certainly not the reception of Jerusalem. His own did not receive him. (laughs) What we read of the Samaritan village here isn't going to be any different. Well, we say. Well, wait a second. Palm Sunday is coming up. They received him, but how fickle of a reception. Hosanna. Crucify him. That that that's not a a reception, is it? It, it feels like one for about ten minutes, and then he gets to the temple. We're coming up on Palm Sunday. We'll, we'll leave that for now. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Wow, only a few weeks. So close to Easter already. Um, but, but that's hardly a reception that would cause Jesus to get uh, focused, would it? Uh, he's going to be rejected by his own. And furthermore, receiving up, the language itself seems to indicate something more than just being received into Jerusalem for a few moments. No, Christ Christ is not thinking of something fickle. Uh, Neither is he confused and ignorant. It's not that Christ is looking at Palm Sunday and saying, Ah, now, now they're ready to receive me as king. Now we will overthrow Herod and the high priest and I. I will establish the Davidic kingdom on earth now. And then he's going to be foiled. No, no, that's such a heretical thought about Christ. That he would be unaware. At any moment of his life. Why he had come from the father. He is fully God. In the womb. And fully man. And that never changes throughout his earthly life. He knows to where he is going. He's not confused. So, what is the receiving up that is spoken of in this text? Well, surely he is knowing that it is that moment of which Daniel 7 prophesied. That moment in which Daniel saw one like the son of man remember that's Jesus favorite name for himself more than any other title or name Jesus refers to himself as the son of man And so here he knows the moment is right the time has come for what Daniel says one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed." No, he's not saying one day in Galilee, boys, the time has come. Grab your swords, let's go. We're going to start David's earthly kingdom. No, he's setting his face for his own glorious return to the Father's right hand. But what does that include? What road must he tread to reach the Father's right hand of glory. We read it in Hebrews 12, didn't we? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Christ here in Galilee is fully aware that the moment has arrived to go up to Jerusalem. As he's been saying throughout all of chapter 9, hasn't he? He's been saying it to the disciples over and over. And they're too, they're too stubborn and foolish and earthly focused to understand. He must go and not be received by his own. He must go up and those who should have received him He says, they will reject me. They, the high priests, the scholars, the scribes, and the Pharisees, they will take me and beat me and and crucify me. But the third day, the third day, I must rise again. Why? Because I must in glory ascend and be received by my own Father in heaven and take a seat on a throne next to him to rule until all my enemies are under my feet. Even that last enemy, death. I must be received into heaven. And when I am, oh, with a nod of the head, as we see in Revelation 12 indicated, with a nod of his thorn-scarred head to Michael the angel. Michael steps forward and grabs Satan by the scruff of the neck and hurls him out of heaven never to accuse you before the Father again. Oh, he accuses you here on earth whispering in your ear how could he love you? Have you seen yourself? But never will the Father permit that voice to speak before him in heaven again. Why? Because one sits at his right hand speaking into his ear, Father, I have redeemed them. My sons, my daughters, rather my brothers and sisters, your sons, your daughters, in me receive them for my sake. This is a huge moment in Christ's ministry and worthy of a third of the book to recount what he did as he moved at this moment. He is moving to be received up into heaven. Yes, a superficial glance at Luke will feel like this next third of the book is no different than the first third. What does he do as he journeys to the cross? He preaches everywhere he goes. He tells parables and explains some of them to his disciples. And he heals those who are sick and afflicted. But some apostle says to Luke when he's making his gospel, he was different. Something changed that day. The moment had arrived and we could feel it. We could feel it. The time had come for that that great glorious ascension into heaven. And that leads verse 51 to the other important thing for us to see. His resolve. The moment had come for him to journey to his glorious... Acceptance at the Father's right hand. And nothing will slow him down or stop him in going there. Look how, look how Luke records it. And again, I, I suspect he's just recording exactly what some apostle said about one day Jesus being different. Verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that... He steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. Steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. At the very least, this is language of a courageous focus. The time has come for His reception, but where does He set His face? The place where He will be betrayed. Where He will be beaten. Where He will be taken outside, away from the community of God's people into the, to the cursed wilderness. And on a cursed cross, a cursed tree, He will be offered up. And then buried in the grave like like any other dead human creature. He set his face to that because the time has come to be received into heaven. Courageous focus. At the very least, but almost certainly many scholars say something more than courageous focus. Because there's something about this language that should draw our thoughts to the suffering servant language that we read this morning with Bill. Where in Isaiah 50 verse 7 he says, I set my face like flint. I hardened my face like Stone, so that I might be unmovable and that is what he is isn't it he, he doesn't flinch he doesn't flinch from the task at hand he won't be distracted he won't be deterred they can even beat his face and pluck out his beard Isaiah 50 verse 6 Luke's going to tell us that really happened. Isaiah's not just waxing eloquent some artistic language. It's what they did to him on the night he was betrayed. They beat his face and they plucked out his beard. And his face didn't flinch. He didn't turn aside. He didn't back down. No, his face is set to the work at hand. And the text immediately proves it. Immediately. That's what Luke wants us to see. With verses 52 through 56. He's put to the test. No sooner do they start this journey. But they come to a village, and as was probably his normal custom, he sent his uh, disciples on ahead as he was teaching or as he was healing people, uh, go, you two, go on into the village, find a, a place where we can stay, someone to host us for the night. And so two of them go in. Maybe it's even James and John. And they see that these Samaritans want nothing to do with Jesus. Here's the man who is known throughout all the realm as the one who heals the broken. Now We, we don't have time for that today. Surely they had sick people in their town. What town doesn't? But they won't receive him. And what did James and John do? They come back with a very earthly attitude. Surely Christ is going to be insulted by them. What an insult. Might as well spit in Christ's face. Well, Jesus, we know who you are. We know that you are the Messiah of God. You're greater than Elijah. We, we, We... The other apostles don't know except Peter. But we, we saw you up there. And Elijah and Moses, they, they were worshiping you. So we, we know that if Elijah did something back in the day, Christ, you can give us authority to do something like that. So Christ, they've insulted you. Let us destroy them. You see, Christ won't be diverted by an insult. His face is set. He he won't turn aside to take vengeance over an insult. In fact, Luke mentions here that this is because of what time it is that Jesus doesn't turn aside. He says, They did not receive him because his face was set for the journey. We're not being told that the Samaritans said, oh, no, uh, well, well, we can't slow Jesus down, see something about his face. But we're being told that this is a test. That they didn't receive him as a test. And Jesus passes. Not Not even his own best friends can derail him from his mission. Two of his best friends And they cannot derail him. They cannot drive him to something else. No, Jesus Jesus sets their focus aright. He's been saying his purpose over and over all of chapter 9. They still don't get it. So he says it to them again. Says it quite powerfully. He says, you don't know what spirit you have. I was reflecting on that this last week. What a statement. You know what that sounds like to me? Even though we rarely hear about this verse as much as the one I'm about to mention. It sounds like James and John got their own get-behind-me-Satan moment. Because if their spirit isn't the Spirit of Christ, what spirit do they sound like? of anything in the Gospels, doesn't this statement from James and John sound like something we heard in the wilderness three years earlier? Satan tempting Christ. You know, Jesus, you can sidestep the whole suffering. Jesus, if if you just call fire down from heaven on these filthy Samaritans who reject your claims... Reject your goodness. Reject your person. Who would reject you after that? Jesus, you want to set up an earthly kingdom. This is how we do it. Forget swords. Call fire down on the Samaritans. And Jerusalem will welcome with open arms. And anyone who doesn't like that you did this will so be afraid of you that they'll follow you anyway. Jesus, we don't need that cross. All that suffering. You've been a real downer lately. We can have the glory right now. Just don't allow this insult. Don't allow the insult. And if you don't allow the insult, no one will have the gall To spit in your face and pluck out your beard. That's the voice of Satan in the wilderness. I think we ought to note that more because the big three apostles. The three that have a secret. The other apostles don't even know about the transformation on that mountain. All three of them in this short period of time have Christ accused them of talking like the devil. And what is his spirit? He set his face, he's resolved, it's flint, he's been insulted, they spit in his face, his friends try to get him to be diverted, and he says, I did not come, I did not come to destroy men's lives. But to save them. He sounds like something earlier in the book as well, doesn't he? All the way back at the beginning of Luke, Jesus is saying, I have come to save my people from their sins. He's been on task for 33 years. He's not diverting now with the cross just ahead. He sets his face for the last journey. And he will not turn aside. One day he will return in judgment. Scripture is quite clear about that. Fire will come down. And this earth will be purged. Leaving nothing but the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness alone dwells he will return as judge but not until after he's received into glory and so he sets his face to the cross the tomb for the joy the throne set before him and not only the throne set before him but the joy Of interceding for his children, his elect, his people in heaven. Christ's resolve. This passage should therefore leave us with great wonder and awe at our Savior. We're going to see in chapters ahead on that journey that he paused in mercy frequently. but not in vengeance ever he pauses to preach the salvation he brings he pauses to speak of the kingdom he establishes in parables he pauses to heal the sick and afflicted but never to call fire from heaven his face is set on salvation and on the end result, the reconciliation of a people to his Father in heaven and our presence with him there. So rejoice. If you're a believer, that should be your response to this passage. Joy joy unspeakable and full of glory he endured he didn't endure as a sudden last minute thought he wasn't going about his life and then all of a sudden martyrdom or recantation was thrown in front of him and well, in a, in a moment's thought, he, he chose martyrdom to save you. Sometimes we do good things in the moment that we might not do if we'd had to think about all the pain it would cause us for weeks in advance. But look at this passage and see the God man. The omniscient one who knew always exactly from before the foundation of the world what it would cost him to save you. And the closer he got to that pain and suffering, the harder he set his face like Flynn. Not to turn aside Not to, not to bail on this task. Yes, in the garden, he set, he continues to set his face, doesn't he? He says, Father, if you can take it from me, if there's any other way, Lord, your will be done. There's no other way. Your will be done. He sets his face there again, doesn't he? He is resolved, resolved. He treads each step. Mark paints a picture of the God-man at this point. He uses a little bit different language. He doesn't say he set his face like flint. He says instead that what the apostles saw, Jesus, on the journey to Jerusalem, was hurrying on ahead. And the disciples, trembling, slowly, trudged Behind. Have you ever been hiking with a group up a mountain and you're all exhausted and they're the people for whom the more exhausted they get, the more stops they want to make. Until they're barely going three steps then they want to sit down again. It's actually not a good thing for your body to do that if you're trying to hike. It it actually is counter- to what you want to accomplish if your goal is to get to the top. Then there's the other people who, they realize that. And so what do they do? I want to get to the top. I'm going to push on even if it's painful. Because I want to get up there. That's what Mark paints for us. The, the apostles. There, there was a heaviness. It's not just that going to Jerusalem from Jericho, the last leg of the journey is uphill and difficult. Oh, sure, there's that. But Mark paints us that picture of Christ's resolve that the the apostles could feel that something heavy was upon them. And so they fearfully slowed their pace. But Christ wouldn't wait for them. He pressed on like one pulling ahead, leaning forward against a burden, moving to the peak, to the cross. That's the resolve he has. It could be felt. It was tangible. They could see it in his eyes. You waver. You wander in your sin. You give up in your pursuit of holiness because it got hard today. That's what we do. Rejoice that your Savior is not like you. He set his face. He was resolved. He would not let hell itself stop him from saving you. And that is exactly what he endured on the tree. Hell itself for you and your salvation. Rejoice. And if he was so resolved to this point, how resolved do you think he will be in interceding for you? In in having his spirit work within you holiness and righteousness to which in him you are called? Oh, his resolve won't waver then either. He who has begun the work within you will see it to completion. He's resolved. And if you're here today and not a believer, you should realize that's the type of Savior who is speaking to you through His Word and even through this sermon. A resolved Savior When he he says to you, an unbeliever today, when he says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he says to you, I am the water of life, drink of me and you will never thirst again. Know that all of this resolve is behind those words to you. Thanks be to God.